Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayome Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayome Azikawe. Today is Friday, January 12th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Later on uh, in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the recent aerial strikes uh, by the United States and Britain against uh, the people of Yemen. China and Sierra Leone are enhancing their cooperation in the area of public health. The World Health Organization organization, the WHO, has issued an update on the cholera outbreak in the Horn of Africa state of Somalia. And in another Horn of Africa state, the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia is becoming a focus uh, for finance technology. In the second hour, we look in detail at the Pentagon aggression against Yemen and the Red Sea area. Finally, we continue our coverage of the Republic of South Africa ANC government's lawsuit against the state of Israel for genocide. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the music of North Africa from the state of Egypt. Uh, This is Um Kaltoum and a concert. Let's listen in.
from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment, our lead story. And these are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. A missile uh, has been launched from a warship during the U.S.-led coalition operation against targets in Yemen uh, from an undisclosed location in this handout picture that is illustrated uh, by Reuters News Agency. Resistance groups across the region have roundly denounced the U.S. and the United Kingdom strikes against targets in Yemen, stating that the attacks confirm the country's allegiance uh, with Israel amid the bloody onslaught against Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. We condemn in the strongest terms the blatant American-British aggression against brotherly Yemen, uh, its security and sovereignty, as well as its freedom-loving and honorable people, uh, Hezbollah said in a statement Earlier today, it added that, quote, the American aggression confirms once again that the United States is a full partner in the tragedies and massacres committed by the Zionist enemy in Gaza and throughout the region, unquote. Hezbollah also saluted the Yemeni nation, the Yemeni armed forces, as well as the Ansarullah resistance movement. Quote, we affirm this act of aggression will not weaken Yemen's strength. On the contrary, it will solidify the nation's determination to confront it and defend itself and continue to tread the path of supporting the Palestinian people, unquote, the statement read. Earlier today, uh, the U.S. and British forces launched air, ship, and submarine strikes against targets across. United States President Joe Biden confirmed the assaults, saying they were conducted by the United States and Britain with support from Australia, Bahrain, Canada, and the Kingdom of the Netherlands. And additional information about the situation in Yemen, the Yemeni Ansarullah resistance movement strongly condemned the United States and the United Kingdom after they launched a full-scale strike against uh, targets in Yemen, uh, warning their military bases across the region will come under attack if they opt to increase aggression. Strikes on Yemen came after Yemeni forces targeted several Israeli-owned and bound shipping in the Red Sea in support of Palestinians in war-torn Gaza, where more than 23,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli onslaughts since October 7th. Quote, Washington and London must acknowledge responsibility for aggravating 
the situation at the Red Sea, and the militarization of the body of water. They must be ready to embrace a heavy price and bear all the deleterious uh, consequences of this open aggression, unquote, Deputy Director of the Ansarullah Moral Guidance Department, Brigadier General Abdullah bin Amir, told the Qatari Arabic language Al Jazeera television news network earlier today. Ben Amir noted that explosions were reported in several cities across Yemen, including the capital of Sana'a and the western port city of Hodeidah, emphasizes that Yemeni forces will forcefully respond to the act of aggression. Quote, we will continue our operations in the Red Sea until the Israeli aggression against Gaza stops, unquote, the senior Asurla official stated. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. In other news, uh, China and Sierra Leone uh, just uh, two days ago vowed to enhance cooperation in the prevention and control of infectious diseases to improve the well-being of Sierra Leoneans. A seminar on emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases organized by the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention China CDC and Sierra Leone's Ministry of Health and Sanitation took place in Freetown, the capital of Sierra Leone. The seminar convened a group of experts, researchers, healthcare professionals, and policymakers in the field. Zhu uh, Zhangguo, an academician uh, of the Chinese Academy of Engineering working at the China CDC, said that emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases poses significant challenges to health security and socioeconomic development in Sierra Leone. This situation necessitates a comprehensive and coordinated approach integrating surveillance, diagnosis, treatment, prevention, and research. And uh, in other news, the World Health Organization said on yesterday, uh, Thursday, January the 11th, 2024, it had ramped up responses to curb cholera transmission in Somalia after devastating floods caused by heavy rains that pounded several parts of the West African state, of the Corn of Africa state. Since January 2023, a total of 18,304 suspected cases of cholera, including 46 associated deaths, were reported from 29 districts in Somalia in the Horn of Africa. Quote, the overall case fatality rate, the CFR of 0.3% reported from the 30 districts, is below the emergency threshold of 1%. However, uh, the CFR in Bella Duende uh, is higher than the emergency threshold, unquote. The World Health Organization said this in its latest update. According to the UN Health Agency, the number of new cholera cases increased by almost 32% in flood-affected districts in the past two weeks due to a cholera outbreak in Bella Duende a town in central Somalia in the Horn of Africa. Quote, the World Health Organization and health partners have scaled up the implementation of cholera response activities in districts affected by floods resulting from the El Nino season since October of 2023, unquote. It said, the World Health Organization said Somalia has had uninterrupted cholera transmission in 30 drought-affected districts since 2022 and in Banadir region in southern Somalia since the drought of 2017. And finally, uh, in regard uh, to developments uh, taking place 
uh, in uh, the uh, Horn of Africa in Ethiopia, uh, the government has asserted that the fintech sector, the financial uh, technical sector, has been one of Africa's biggest technology success stories. According to one report, the continent's 678 financial technical startup raises more than 2.7 billion U.S. dollars between 2021 and August of 2023. Additionally, almost all of the continent's unicorns that start up valued at more than 1 billion U.S. dollars are in the financial technical sector. The majority of that success has, however, come from the continent's three biggest startup markets, that is South Africa, Kenya, and Nigeria. In fact, 68% of the African financial tech or fintech startups come from these three big three markets, but things are steadily changing. More and more countries are realizing the benefits that come with an effective and active tech ecosystem with a growing number of entrepreneurs in those countries also looking to enter the space. One such country is the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia home to more than 120 million people, making it the second most populous country on the African continent. The country has many of the right ingredients to become Africa's next big fintech giant. The, in addition uh, to the country's population size, it's home to large numbers of unbanked people. At the same time, the country continues to experience high economic growth and rapidly increasing connectivity levels. With those and other enabling factors in place, could Ethiopia be Africa's next big financial technical giant? In order to read these uh, articles in their entirety, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Newswire website, and that's going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, uh, some 26 years ago, and has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches and hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. Uh, if you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Friday, January the 12th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, we'd like to go uh, to a statement uh, issued uh, by the Yemeni Armed Forces uh, spokesperson uh, who is responding uh, to uh, the United States and British bomb attacks uh, on Yemen uh, just uh, several hours ago. Let's listen in. 
Interrupting our programming to take you live to Yemen, where the spokesman for the Houthi armed forces is giving a statement after U.S. and British forces carried out strikes against Houthi targets. Let's listen in. The response: the Yemeni armed forces will not hesitate to target the origin of any threat and all enemy targets in land and on the sea to defend the Yemen's sovereignty and independence. This belligerence cannot dent the Yemeni armed forces from their purpose supporting the Palestinian people. We, the armed forces of Yemen, will continue to prevent the Israeli vessels or those headed to the occupied Palestinian territories from navigating in the Arab Sea or the Red Sea. God is our rock and long live Yemen, independent and free. Victory to Yemen and all free men worldwide. This is in Sana'a on the 12th of January 2024, a statement issued by the Yemeni Armed Forces. A statement issued by the Yemeni Armed Forces. He who starts an aggression against you should be fought against. The American-British enemy in the context of the support to the Israel criminal act in Gaza launched a belligerence against the Republic of Yemen with 73 airstrikes targeting Sana'a, Hudayda, Taiz, and Saada. These airstrikes claimed the lives of five and caused six to be injured from among the ranks of our armed forces. The British-American enemy is held totally liable for their criminal belligerence against our Yemeni people. This belligerence cannot go unpunished. This cannot go without a response. The Yemeni armed forces will not hesitate to target the origin of any threats together with all enemy targets in the land or on the sea to defend Yemen's sovereignty and independence. This belligerence aggression cannot dent the Yemeni armed forces from supporting the Palestinian people, the Yemeni armed forces, reiterate they will continue to prevent Israeli vessels or those headed to the occupied Palestinian seaport from navigating in the Arab or the Red Sea. And God is our rock and he is a disposer of all affairs. Long live Yemen, free and independent. Victory to Yemen and all free men worldwide issued in Sana'a, the first of Rajab 14, 45 Hijri, the 12th of January 2024, a statement issued by the Yemeni Armed Forces. So we have been listening there to uh, the spokesperson for Yemen's 
Houthi armed forces, that is Yahya Sari. He has been speaking following U.S. and British forces carrying out airstrikes against Houthi targets in Yemen. So those comments uh, from the Houthi spokesperson come after, as we've said, U.S. British forces carried out airstrikes. Multiple sites across the country were hit, including near the capital, Sana'a, and the uh, Yahya Sari said that 73 airstrikes, so there were 73 airstrikes targeting, he said, Sana'a, Hodeidah, and Sada. He said that a number of their armed forces were injured in these airstrikes. He said that Yemen will continue to prevent Israel Israel-linked vessels, ships traveling in the Red Sea that are linked to Israel in any way uh, from navigating in the Red Sea and maintain that this is in support of the Palestinian people in Gaza, that they will not stop until there is a ceasefire in Gaza. It, this is the first time that Western countries have launched strikes against the Iran-backed group since it started attacking ships in the Red Sea late last year. Let's go to this report from Shihab Ratanzi from Washington, D.C. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, a statement uh, by the Yemeni spokesperson uh, for the Yemeni Armed Forces. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Friday, January 12th, uh, 2024. Uh, we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Now we'd like to go into a more in-depth report on what the actual impact uh, of these airstrikes uh, by the United States, by the United Kingdom, against uh, the people of Yemen. Uh, let's listen in. We start in Yemen, where Houthi rebels have promised retaliation for U.S. and British airstrikes, which Houthis say killed at least five people. The strikes prompted tens of thousands to protest in the Yemeni capital, Sana'a. Iran, which backs the Houthis, has also condemned the strikes. The incident is increasing fears that the war between Israel and Hamas could expand into a wider regional conflict. The US and UK said the strikes against targets across Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen were to protect international trade routes from Houthi attacks. In recent weeks, Houthi rebels have launched more than a dozen drone and missile strikes on Red Sea shipping. One by one, American military aircraft take off. Part of a coordinated strike back against Yemen's Houthi rebels in retaliation for attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. Led by the US and Britain in a mission described as an act of self-defense to restore stability along the important trade route. The UK military has released these images of its airstrikes. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who is currently visiting Ukraine, said the strikes were necessary, proportionate and targeted. Well, over the last month, we've seen a significant increase in the number of Houthi attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. That's putting innocent lives at risk. It's disrupting the global economy. Uh, and it's also uh, destabilizing the region. Uh, and in that time, we've also seen the single biggest attack on a Navy warship, a British Navy warship that we've seen in decades. Now it's clear that that type of behavior can't carry on. 
U.S. officials say more than a dozen sites were attacked, including command centers and munitions depots used by the Houthi group. With Houthi television broadcasting video claiming to show explosions and the apparent aftermath of the strikes. The American and British enemies bear full responsibility for their criminal aggression against our Yemeni people. It will not go unpunished or unanswered. The Yemeni armed forces will not hesitate to target threatening sources and all hostile targets on land and sea in order to defend Yemen, its sovereignty and independence. Houthi rebels, who are backed by Iran, have been targeting ships in the Red Sea for weeks, with the group releasing this footage in November of its fighters appearing to seize a vessel. It claims the attacks are in response to Israel's war in Gaza against Hamas, whom the US, EU and other countries have labelled a terrorist organisation. The big question now is what this could mean for the war in Gaza and the wider region, with the world bracing for a response from the Houthis and those who support them. Well, let's look at some of those questions with Elizabeth Kendall, who is a Middle Easter expert from Cambridge University. Welcome to DW. Let's start local and zoom out if we can. Um, we'll start with the Red Sea. The, the, what does this escalation mean for this area, one of the busy, busiest shipping channels uh, in the world? Well, of course, the idea behind the strikes by the United States and the UK is to try to disengage the Houthis from wreaking havoc in the Red Sea. So the whole point is to try to tamp down the conflict there and to ease the burden uh, of fear on the shipping industry and therefore the knock-on effects that that has on our economies. The problem now is that the actual effect it may have on the region is to make things even worse. And the reason I say that is that the Houthis are no strangers to airstrikes. They have been in a civil war in Yemen now for nine years. They've suffered more than 25,000 airstrikes by the Saudi-led coalition, and it didn't deter them. So I think, looking ahead, we might stand to see even more conflict start to erupt in this Red Sea region. Okay. The Houthis say they're launching these attacks for the sake of Hamas in its war against Israel. Should we take that claim at face value? I think that claim could be taken in two ways. I don't think we can dismiss it entirely as not being genuine. I think the Houthis, as are many people around the Arab world, are genuinely concerned about the plight of the Palestinians and feel that they want to stick up for them in a way that other governments, other regimes in the region probably can't speak out. And however, it's absolutely the case that this works very well for them politically and that they are able to exploit the situation in an opportunistic way to try to gain more support for themselves inside Yemen and indeed more broadly. So it works at both those levels at the same time. Right. Let's go back then to this, this, uh, this notion that you say it looks like uh, this uh, Operation Prosperity Guardian hasn't worked, may indeed uh, backfire, because I wonder about the calculation for commanders uh, in, in charge of, of this operation, how hard they must be looking at, well how hard can we hit them without the whole region going up in flames? 
that's going to be extremely difficult to understand. Now, it didn't look like there were many options left on the table. Most things had been tried, sanctions against the Houthis, curbing their flow of funds, some diplomatic efforts, but without much leverage over the Houthis, those weren't really going to work. And then, of course, the threat of having the multinational maritime force in the region. None of that was enough to deter them, and so we've now moved to this much more direct military action. Finding that line, however, is going to be really difficult because being at war in the Red Sea is one thing. Sea is one thing. Land, taking this fight now to Yemen, to a land-based airstrike situation, that really could inflame the region. And the Houthis, for sure, will be milking this for all that they have. It plays into their narratives of being the victim of the U.S., and its allies being aggressive towards Arab and Muslim states. That's right. exactly how they wanted to pitch it. Just a, a, a quick final uh, a thought on whether the Houthis could just wait this out, because the U.S. has shown itself now to be disinclined uh, to become too deeply involved in foreign uh, adventures. The Houthis could just absorb this. America gets, gets bored or distracted. It's got an election on the way. And then the Houthis are still there, and maybe even a change of, of policy at the White House. This is precisely the dilemma here, because it is an unequal war. On the one hand, we have the U.S. and allies who do not want to get bogged down in a war and who are very sensitive to casualties. And on the other, we have the Houthis, who are quite willing to take significant casualties, who seem quite comfortable with the discomfort of their populations, who have been at war now on and off in the region for almost 20 years, since 2004, in fact. And so they're hardened. They're used to this. And really, if you're around the age of 20, 22, inside Yemen, all you've known, apart from one or two years, is going to be war. Right. So they have much more appetite to continue this than we do. And they can do a lot with very little resource. That's very clear. Thank you so much for talking us through that. Elizabeth Kendall from Cambridge University. You're welcome. Let's get into this with Ian Ralby, a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for Maritime Strategy. Welcome to DW News. I'd like to start by setting the stakes a little bit here. Can you tell us what this escalation means for the Red Sea, one of the busiest shipping channels in the world? Yeah, unfortunately, this is exactly what the Houthis have been waiting for for about 10 years. And as a result, we have to be concerned about how they're going to lash out further at shipping. Uh, for the last two months, they have been very consistent in attacking global maritime commerce, which is really an assault on all of us because we are all dependent on the free flow of goods all over the world, and no matter where it is, it's going to affect our supply chains. And the Red Sea is a critical choke point, uh, and so they've been doing a very good job of, of making global commerce more difficult. Uh, but this is likely to increase the challenge. They have long held the narrative that the war in Yemen was actually about fighting the U.S. and the U.K., and now that they have actually experienced uh, the force of the U.S. and the U.K., uh, they are going to be able to embolden themselves further uh, and probably reach out even further uh, because they now are finding all kinds of supporters that had been a bit tired of the long conflict uh, but are now re-enlivened. So the fact that they've effectively moved from just being a local rebel group uh, backed by Iran to now being a very disruptive to shipping, it sounds like you think this, this strengthens the Houthis' hand. 
It very much does, unfortunately. They, uh, they've been trying to sell everyone on a narrative for years uh, internally, and that narrative is spilling over into the wider region because for the first time, they've actually gotten everybody's attention. They had no real visibility for most of the time that they've been fighting against the government of Yemen. Uh, let's be very clear. These strikes were not against Yemen. They were against the Houthis, but the problem is it has given them the focus of the world. Uh, we are talking about them all over the world. They've been the source of uh, and focus of a UN Security Council meeting, a very high-profile British Cabinet Office meeting. Um, they're getting the attention they've long dreamed of, and it is coming from the very sources that they wished to draw the attention of. And so we are uh, likely to see a, a wider effort at both recruiting uh, and expanding their mission to, to try to lash out at the West and, and further themselves. They are not interested in Palestine, except as so far as it gives them a reason to fight. They are very uh, <laughs> opportunistic mm. in how they've jumped on the Israel-Gaza situation for their own rights. So even as this is boosting their, their profile internationally, uh, looking at the response we've seen so far from the U.S. and the U.K. and these strikes, which they say are aimed at protecting this crucial shipping uh, through the Red Sea, do you think that the strikes that we've already seen or more intense strikes could deter the Houthis con to con from continuing to uh, attack Red Sea shipping? Unfortunately, I, I don't. Um, I've been watching the Houthis for a long time, and they do not act like the rest of us. The Houthis uh, ha have a very particular uh, mindset. They have a particular mission. And unfortunately, we played into their hands. They're terrible playmates, and, and they're enjoying this play. They are uh, not going to respond to deterrence the way we see deterrence. They're not going to respond to force the way we would respond to force. And so what would perhaps make others think twice is only going to encourage them because they are really keen on promoting this narrative. For 10 years, they've been playing a game of fake it till you make it. Now they've made it because they've been talking about fighting the U.S. and the U.K. for 10 years, and now they actually get the chance to. And so this is going to uh, really expand their possibilities for uh, not only recruiting internally, uh, but potentially trying to encourage others in, in the region and even far beyond uh, to be inspired by uh, what yeah, has been labeled a, a global protest. Uh, sorry, just one question before I let you go. So if you think that deterrence is not mm -hmm. going to be helpful here, what would you advise Washington and London as they're looking at this issue? What choices do they have other than military force? Well, it, it is about what deterrence actually means. And unfortunately, these, these attacks were, were, were uh, if you were going to launch an attack, it needed to be uh, more forceful uh, than what we're seeing. And, and that, that uh, unfortunately leads us down a very dangerous path. What we need to look at is how to draw the Houthis' attention away from shipping, uh, because right now that is the, the principal concern, because every person on earth is affected by it. And that needs to uh, to be done with with pretty intense diplomatic acumen, probably not by the U.S. and the U.K., but through partners uh, to draw the Houthi attention away and, and see if they can find a way. But we've now put ourselves in a very difficult position where uh, we're, we're likely to see a period of back-and-forth escalation un until someone uh, changes tactics. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. That's Ian Ralby with the Center for Maritime Strategy. We very much appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I spoke earlier with Guido Steinberg with the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, and I asked him whether these latest airstrikes were likely to stop the Houthis from attacking shipping in the Red Sea, given that it is not the first time the U.S. has intervened. Well, uh, yes, that's true, but a couple of years ago, uh, the United States did exactly the same, and uh, it did work. This time, though, 
Uh, I think the situation uh, is different. Uh, the United States and other countries have warned the Houthis. They have presented an ultimatum uh, last week, and the Houthis went on attacking, uh, attacking civilian ships. I think that they will try their utmost uh, to keep up their attack, attacks on, uh, on the traffic uh, close to the Baba Manda uh, Straits. And in response, how far do you then think the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, and possibly even more countries joining the coalition, how far would they be willing to go to try to prevent uh, further strikes from the Houthis? Well, uh, I think that the United States and Britain uh, and also some other countries will keep up uh, their airstrikes against the Houthis if the Houthis don't stop the attacks. Um, on, on, on traffic in the, in the Red Sea. Um, but, uh, they do not have any more, um, alternatives. Uh, the situation in Yemen is dangerous. Uh, the civil war has come down in the last two years, but the Houthis are always able to hit Saudi targets. Uh, and that has proved to be extremely dangerous in recent years. The Houthis have attacked uh, the capital, Riyadh. They have attacked oil installations. They have also uh, attacked the United Arab Emirates. And there is the danger that any American uh, and British strikes on Yemen might provoke uh, a renewed outbreak of the civil war in Yemen and of the attacks uh, on Saudi Arabia and the UAE and I don't think that this is uh, the, the, the outcome that Washington wants. Indeed. Uh, tell us more about that uh, and where Saudi Arabia uh, stands in all of this, because it's, it's, of course, been trying to end both the conflict with the Houthis and also just reduce tensions with its regional rival, Iran, lately. Yes. Well, Saudi Arabia is in a, is in a difficult uh, situation. It has uh, tried uh, to exit the war in Yemen, Yemen ever since 2019, and it, it uh, has stopped virtually all of its uh, military activities in Yemen some one and a half, two years ago. It has entered into negotiations directly with uh, the Houthi movement. And the last thing Saudi Arabia wants is a renewal of fighting in Yemen and a renewal of the fighting with the Houthis. And that's part of the reason why Saudi Arabia did not join uh, this coalition of states um, in, in the Red Sea, trying to secure the, uh, the Red Sea. And that's quite, uh, quite interesting, simply because uh, it, it is in Saudi Arabia's interest uh, to secure uh, the sea lanes uh, up to the uh, to the Suez Canal. Absolutely, uh, very fascinating that Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia does not seem to want to get involved here. Um, also, this was, of course, an attack uh, against one of Iran's proxies, and I'm curious about their reaction because the first thing we've heard from Tehran is also a call for restraint rather than revenge. Um, does that also signal to you that Iran is planning to keep out of this? Yes, uh, Iran does not want a wider conflict, but at the same time, it wants to show the Israelis and their allies that they are able to exert influence in the region. And that's uh, the reason why uh, the Iranian client Hezbollah in Lebanon has attacked the Israelis uh, in the last three months, time and again. And that's the reason why the Houthis 
keep attacking the sea lanes in the Red Sea. So Iran is the main responsible, uh, but it tries everything uh, to, to deny its uh, responsibility for what is happening. The signal, though, the message, it is arriving uh, in the West, but especially in Saudi Arabia. Well, thank you so much for providing that regional perspective for us. That's uh, Guido Steinberg with the German Institute for International and Security Affairs. Well, the military operation in Yemen was supported by Australia, Canada, the Netherlands, South Korea and Germany, amongst others. Here's German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock. The federal government backs this reaction politically. We have issued a statement in this regard together with our partners. The Houthis bear responsibility for their actions, the attacks on civilian shipping. They have to cease these attacks without delay. We as the EU are working urgently on contributing to the stabilization in the Red Sea and looking at contributions to the stabilization. This has to be decided within the EU framework. We are working on that urgently. Well, like the German Foreign Secretary, uh, Tobias Bachele is a member of the German Parliament for the Green Party. He also sits on the Parliament's uh, Committee on Foreign Affairs. Uh, welcome to DW. So we just heard Annalena Baerbock say the EU is looking for ways to contribute to the stabilization uh, in the Red Sea. What is that likely to look like? Um, I assume that this is uh, mainly regarding, well, assuring the safety of uh, merchant uh, vessels. Uh, probably we're talking about uh, Marines uh, securing the passage. Um, I think that's the way to go for the European Union. Right. So is that Germany's Bundeswehr, a German sailors, Germany's uh, Navy are going out into the Red Sea, uh, ready to engage the Houthis in direct combat? Well, possibly, yes. Um, I would uh, say so, but uh, of course it means it's embedded in an in international um, um, uh, approach to uh, securing our merchant uh, or our old merchant vessels and their security. Um, and of course, if uh, the Houthis uh, decide to further attack um, civil but also military targets uh, in the Red Sea or uh, somewhere around, uh, that would also mean that... Uh, if we participate, uh, that means we are, we are uh, securing that, of course, also, if necessary, in a matter of uh, combat. Right. So this is a plan that, that you support. How far progressed is it? Um, honestly, I, I can't tell. Currently, we have no, no information yet. Uh, as you know, the Bundeswehr is a parliamentarian uh, army, or so-called parliamentarian army, which means every time they are sent into any kind of mission, the parliament needs to discuss on it and um, yeah, agree on it. And uh, so far, we still are at the point on negotiations on European level how a European mission could look like. And if we know further information about that, or if we have an agreement on European level, I um, expect an, an, a proposal to come to the Parliament um, and an expectation to come to the Bundeswehr or towards the Bundeswehr in Germany. And that's when we are going to discuss that. Um, but so far, we have no further information or, or anything as that this is currently under negotiation on European level. 
And what is it that you believe German uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, would potentially be fighting and dying for? What would their mission be? Well, protecting civil and merchant vessels. I think that's the key, and that's uh, the biggest problem with the attacks of the Houthis within uh, the last few weeks, we, as we have seen, that they decided to attack um, vessels that they believed were aligned with uh, Israel. And, um, I mean, as uh, the, the expert before, as Elizabeth Kendall just said, um, the Houthis are exploiting a political situation where they hope uh, to align with the with the with the uh, Palestinians. I don't believe they are doing anything in favor really for the Palestinian with that. Um, but above all, attacking civil and merchant uh, vessels can't be tolerated. And so, uh, briefly, is Germany's Bundeswehr willing or even able? to engage in a direct conf confrontation with uh, Houthis in the Red Sea. It was only 2014 that uh, equipment shortages meant German soldiers were using broomsticks instead of heavy machine guns during a, a NATO military exercise. You actually have the wherewithal to do this. Um, first of all, yes, and second of all, to get one thing clear, um, I do hope that the Houthis will stop their attacks, um, not only if they see that the European Union is willing to protect their and other civil and merchant vessels, um, so that it won't be necessary, but if it's necessary, if the Houthis um, decide to further attack uh, ships, whether it's uh, merchant vessels or Navy ships that we might be sending there, of course, uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, our Bundeswehr is ready to, to combat that. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Tobias Bachheller, a Green member of the, Germany's, uh, the German Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. So let's dig into where Germany fits into all this and get some perspective from Germany's biggest opposition party. Uh, Johann Vadafel joins me now. He is a member of parliament for the conservative CDU party and a defense and foreign policy expert. Welcome uh, to DW News. We've just heard the German foreign minister there saying that the EU is looking for ways to contribute to the stabilization in the Red Sea. Can you give us a sense of what that could look like? Yes, good afternoon. I would like to say that, that uh, we as opposition, we as Christian Democrats support absolutely uh, what uh, our foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, just said. It is uh, very uh, good and, and necessary that Germany, as a country belonging to NATO and European Union, backs what the United States, United Kingdom and other uh, of our, our allies did. Uh, it was necessary uh, to give that signal to the Houthis that they cannot go on with these strikes uh, onto the uh, uh, Red Sea to the Suez Canal. That endangers our supply chains. Um, that, is, that is not acceptable anymore. So we politically absolutely uh, support this, and uh, we as opposition back our, our government uh, on, this, on this path. And, of course, we as Germany always need an international framework to uh, legally uh, 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 make it possible for Germany to, to join uh, these military actions. And uh, we just uh, 
as Annalena Verbot said, we are trying to, to find a framework on the European level, and I hope that will be successful as soon as possible. So we are looking at a possible military response uh, from Germany with unity within, uh, within Parliament between the coalition government and uh, your opposition, CDU. Did I understand that correctly? Yes, absolutely. We would support that uh, if the government comes over to us and asks us, uh, asks, uh, asks for support. There will be, be political support. There will be the uh, support in, in our parliament. We do have uh, units, Navy units in the region. Uh, the German Navy is able uh, to support uh, uh, these military strikes. And also, uh, with, with other military means, Germany is politically uh, uh, ready to, to, to support our allies because uh, if we want to want to stop an escalation there, there has to be a clear political and also military signal to the Houthis that they cannot go on. And this is also a political sign to Iran in order to stop uh, the Houthis because they are... Uh, they are the ones who are behind the Houthis, not only militarily, but also politically. So, so that is very necessary in, 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 in these times. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if I may just jump in, her, if, if uh, Germany the, is, is yes. willing to commit these naval units and perhaps other forms of military action, does that not have the potential to drag mm -hmm. Germany here into a much wider regional conflict with, with Iran, for example, which you've just said are uh, strong backers of the Houthis? I think it's just the other way around because uh, it, it's a similar situation to the situation uh, in Ukraine. Um, uh, if you, if you uh, do not uh, signal very clear uh, to the ones who start uh, violating uh, international law, if you do not uh, give, uh, the, uh, show them the clear will to deter them and to defend the international law, they will go on. Putin does it, and the Houthis uh, and Iran will also do so if we don't signal them very clearly that they, they will uh, get, get a clear message from our side. And the West, the European Union, NATO, has uh, always to be united, and Germany as a central uh, country in Europe and as, a, as an important member of, of NATO and European Union uh, has to join the, uh, the alliance uh, there in, in, in order to, to stop uh, an escalation. Uh, so, so the clear signal and the readiness uh, to, to, to join the others will, will uh, stop an escalation. Well, thank you very much for speaking with us today on DW News. That is Johann Vadepul, a member of the German Parliament for the Conservative Pleasure. Opposition. Many thanks. Welcome back. And uh, that was the report on developments taking place in Yemen. And of course, uh, we at the Pan-African Journal and the Pan-African Newswire have been covering the issue uh, over the last uh, three months and uh, even before. 
You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide radio broadcast for today, Friday, January the 12th, 2024, and we've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And we'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Friday, January 12th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting 
from our studios in downtown Detroit, Michigan, USA. And uh, right now we want to move uh, back uh, to the question of Palestine. Yesterday, uh, the South African government uh, went to the International Court of Justice, the highest uh, world court uh, affiliated uh, with the United Nations organization. And today, uh, the racist uh, state of Israel uh, gave its response to the charges being put forward by the Republic of South Africa charging genocide against uh, the state of Israel. Let's listen to uh, the Minister of Justice, uh, Ronald Lamola, uh, and his uh, address uh, to the media today uh, in the aftermath of the uh, uh, statements uh, put forward before the court uh, by uh, the state of Israel. And we start with our biggest story of the past two days. Day two of the South Africa International Court of Justice application hearing concluded today with Israel, of course, responding to South Africa's charge of genocide. SABC News international correspondent or international editor Sophie Mugwena is at The Hague and joins us now. Sophie, the Israeli legal team presented a rebuttal of South Africa's submissions, basically rubbishing any allegations against them, calling them distorted facts and labeled the South African case, the greatest hypocrisy. Give us the latest from that side. Well, indeed, uh, the legal team from Israel today presented its case. I think the case was based particularly on what transpired on the 7th of October 2023 in terms of where it all started in relation to the current uh, military operation in Gaza, the team saying that uh, many Israel uh, citizens were killed, some were nationals from other countries, and therefore Israel had to respond and defend itself. And as long as uh, you have Hamas operating in Gaza, you will continue to have this kind of attacks and also they were arguing that uh, the case uh, that was presented by South Africa yesterday doesn't hold water in relation to the genocide. They were saying that uh, at all times the officials from Israel government have tried to make uh, ordinary citizens aware when they were going to launch uh, particular operations to ensure that uh, people are able to move to secure places. But we saw that that didn't help because still many people died. We're talking about more than 20,000 uh, people who have died, mainly children and also women. But with me, I have the Minister of Justice and Correctional Service, Ronald Lamola to speak to us about uh, the observation in relation to what Israel said. Minister, Israel is saying South Africa is off the mark. There is no genocide in Gaza because they do communicate. Secondly, in defense of Israel, they will have to hunt Hamas because there's 
a chance that Hamas can strike back. Your case, you are saying there was a genocide and there is still genocide and therefore the court must intervene. Do you think what you put forward yesterday is strong enough to convince the judges that uh, there must be a provisional measure in relation to asking Israel to halt its uh, operation? Yes, indeed, um, um, Sophie. You will remember that yesterday we presented jurisprudence of the court to the effect that um, there is no justification for committing genocide. Uh, that is a decision of the court which is jurisprudential, which is authoritative even in this matter. So that defense has also been disputed um, by various uh, ad hoc committees of the UN that uh, found that the, 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 the use of defense is no justification for the state of Israel's actions um, in, in Gaza. Uh, you, you can't um, maim and kill children. The, the, the children's numbers that have been killed through, during this period is the highest in any um, war situation. Killing of journalists, um, killing of uh, doctors, and so forth. That can be seen as, um, as an act of self-defense or an act that is hunting Hamas. So that on its own, it, it falls flat um, in the context of, um, of the jurisprudence of the court in terms of uh, what is, um, is, is a genocide. They also argued that uh, South Africa is kind of being unfair in terms of how they have been communicating with South African government, uh, responding to what South Africa is saying or what South Africa said previously. In terms of the communication, did you communicate with Israel your grievances or your concerns before taking this matter here at The Hague? Not just statements, but a proper diplomatic channels communication did you speak to them and did you respond to their uh, communication yes as you will remember at the steps immediately after the court i was with the dg of um, international relations mr dango who stated that indeed um, he has uh, communicated with the state of israel including to state uh, the reservations of the south african government with regards to the situation in gaza so that has also been addressed yesterday by our lawyers um, as we presented the matter when they tried when they were establishing the jurisdictional point and the um, issue of the dispute so that has been sufficiently addressed and covered in terms of the intent uh, yesterday south africa was saying that the statements from different officials uh, including the prime minister of uh, israel the head of government in israel we know that you also uh, pointed out to what the head of state the president even though he doesn't have powers in terms of running of government and also the minister of uh, defense what he said and israel is saying you can't use that as an argument those were just uh, a statement just a rhetoric statement yeah that's shocking um, and that's why we, uh, at the steps we said um, it's astonishing how can you ignore and state that um, 
as a fact the statements of a prime minister, the statement of the minister of defense, the statement of the generals, even the songs that were clearly carrying out what the, 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 the prime minister has said, uh, the Amalek uh, moment, clearly executing what they saw as policy. You can't ignore statements by a prime minister who has got executive powers, who has got authority, including the Minister of Defense, the generals, and also seeing the soldiers. So there is a clear relay effect and a chain of events emanating from the policy statement of the prime minister and the execution, um, as you will have seen from the video that we played in court yesterday. So there is no way you can uh, 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 dismiss that as a rhetorical or just political speak. That was showing the clear intent of the policy position of the State of Israel, which is to displace, which is to remove, and also to annihilate the entire population of Palestine out of Gaza. Minister, finally, when are you expecting to receive uh, perhaps a response from the ICJ? Yeah, obviously we don't want to really preempt and second-guess the court in terms of uh, its processes. But in previous um, instances of this nature, the court was able to issue the outcome or the, the provisional indication or injunction within a period of 10 days. So that is our expectation. We are hopeful that the, the court also understand the, the agency on the basis of the continued uh, siege and bombardment in Gaza. In terms of processes, if the case is in favor of South Africa, you still have a hurdle in terms of implementation. Where to from there? But secondly, if you don't get what you want, where to? Yeah, I think in terms of uh, implementation, so you will have heard even today, the State of Israel, most of the things that they've said they've done um, were done last week, some of them were done this week. Even um, the, 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 the statements issued by the government, also the government of the U USA, uh, the, the Secretary of State, there is a sign that they are breaking and they are beginning to understand the gravity of the papers that we've submitted. So the papers already had an impact with the work. So we believe that the issuing of the judgment will be more authoritative, will also help to ensure that there is protection of the people of Palestine. And Minister, do you, do you think this case, it is what compelled Israel to scale down its operations, as they have announced, but you still get information that people are still dying in Gaza? Yes, I mean, um, what they have said today in court, that is what they, are, they have said, that they have done in, in the past week or, or two. It is clear that it was done after the, the papers were received, uh, including the communication uh, of the language to be used, uh, and so forth. But the court judgment will be very authoritative, will be helpful, so that as we move to deal with the merits of the matter, it must enable um, a lasting solution uh, in, 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 in Gaza. Uh, as we are saying, as we speak now, the, the continued bombardment and siege is continuing. What is no longer clearly visible or seen is the rhetoric um, uh, that they, they claim is rhetoric, which we believe it's a policy statement by the, by the government uh, to, to finish off Gaza. And finally, what do you say to Africans who are currently suffering in Sudan, in some parts of the continent, in relation to abuse of human rights and 
particularly in Sudan, where we are seeing a genocide unfolding, particularly in Darfur. What is South Africa doing? Back home, Africa is home. Yeah, Sophie, you'll be aware that um, even the matter of Palestine has been with us for more than 20 years. South Africa has been campaigning for Palestine for more than 20 years. We, we, we came to court because of the situation escalating and the agents of the matter and with the fact that all diplomatic processes uh, that have, have been undertaken by the UN has failed. So this organ of the UN becomes an element of last resort. So in all those areas that you are talking about, we are aware of our role as a country. We are playing a role to find a lasting solution in many parts of the African continent, uh, in Sudan, South Sudan, in, uh, in Darfur, as you said. Um, in, in the DRC, and many parts of the African continent. So coming to this court, it's an element of last resort. There are still diplomatic processes and engagement that are being done by our international relations in all those areas in the African continent. Thank you so much, Minister, for your time. That was the Minister of Justice and Correctional Services, Ronald Lamula, speaking to us here in The Hague. Welcome back. And that was um, South African Minister of Justice, Ronald Lamola, uh, speaking outside of the International Court of Justice in the Netherlands at The Hague uh, earlier today. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment uh, of our program.
Welcome back. And uh, that was Detroit Stone, Anita Baker, and Watch Your Step, the extended version. And uh, our final segment uh, deals uh, with one of the oral arguments that was made before the International Court of Justice yesterday in the Netherlands at The Hague by the Republic of South Africa. Uh, Let's uh, listen uh, to uh, this report. Madam President, members of the court, there is an urgent need for provisional measures to protect Palestinians in Gaza from the irreparable prejudice caused by Israel's violations of the Genocide Convention. The United Nations Secretary General and its chiefs describe the situation in Gaza variously as a crisis of humanity, a living hell, a bloodbath, a situation of utter deepening and unmatched horror where an entire population is besieged and under attack, denied access to the essentials for survival on a massive scale. As the United Nations Under Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs stated last Friday, and I quote, Gaza has become a place of death and despair. Families are sleeping in the open as temperatures plummet. Areas where civilians were told to relocate for their safety have come under relentless attack, bombardment. Medical facilities are under relentless attack. The few hospitals that are partially functional are overwhelmed with trauma cases, critically short of all supplies, and inundated by desperate people seeking safety. A public health disaster is unfolding. Infectious diseases are spreading in overcrowded shelters as sewers spill over. Some 180 women are giving birth daily amidst this chaos. People are facing the highest levels of food insecurity ever recorded. Famine is around the corner. For children in particular, the last 12 weeks have been traumatic. No food, no water, no school, nothing but the terrifying sounds of war day in and day out. Gaza has simply become uninhabitable. Its people are witnessing daily threats to their very existence while the world watches on." End quote. The court has heard of the horrific death toll and of the more than 7,000 Palestinian men, women and children reported missing, presumed dead or dying slow, excruciating deaths trapped under the rubble. Reports of field executions and torture and ill-treatment are mounting, as are images of decomposing bodies of Palestinian men, women and children left unburied where they were killed, some being picked upon by animals. It is becoming ever clearer that huge swathes of Gaza, entire towns, villages, refugee camps, are being wiped from the map. As you have heard, but it bears repeating, according to the World Food Programme, four out of five people in the world in famine or a catastrophic type of hunger are in Gaza right now. Indeed, experts warn that deaths from starvation and disease risks significantly outstripping deaths from bombings. The daily statistics 
stand as clear evidence of the urgency and of the irreparable prejudice. On the basis of the current figures, on average, 247 Palestinians are being killed and are at risk of being killed each day, many of them literally blown to pieces. They include 48 mothers each day, two every hour, and over 117 children each day, leading UNICEF to call Israel's actions a war on children. On current rates which show no sign of abating, each day over three medics, two teachers, more than one United Nations employee, and more than one journalist will be killed, many while at work or in what appear to be targeted attacks on their family homes or where they are sheltering. The risk of famine will increase each day. Each day, an average of 629 people will be wounded, some multiple times over, as they move from place to place, desperately seeking sanctuary. Each day, over 10 Palestinian children will have one or both legs amputated, many without anaesthetic. Each day, on current rates, an average of 3,900 Palestinian homes will be damaged or destroyed. More mass graves will be dug. More cemeteries will be bulldozed and bombed and corpses violently exhumed, denying even the dead any dignity or peace. Each day, ambulances, hospitals and medics will continue to be attacked and killed. The first responders who have spent three months without international assistance, trying to dig families out of the rubble with their bare hands, will continue to be targeted. On current figures, one will be killed almost every second day, sometimes in attacks launched against those attending the scene to rescue the wounded. Each day, yet more desperate people will be forced to relocate from where they are sheltering or will be bombed in places where they have been told to evacuate to. Entire multi-generational families will be obliterated. And yet more Palestinian children will become WCNSF, Wounded Child, No Surviving Family, the terrible new acronym born out of Israel's genocidal assault on the Palestinian population in Gaza. There is an urgent need for provisional measures to prevent imminent irreparable prejudice to the rights in issue in this case. There could not be a clearer or more compelling case. In the words of the Commissioner General of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, there must be an end to the decimation of Gaza and of its people. Turning to the court's case law, as the court has recently reaffirmed, and I quote, the condition of urgency is met when acts susceptible of causing irreparable prejudice can occur at any moment before the court makes a final decision on the case, end quote. That is precisely the situation here. Any of those matters to which I have referred can and are occurring at any moment. United Nations Security Council resolutions demanding, quote, the immediate, safe, unhindered delivery of humanitarian assistance at scale 
throughout Gaza and full, rapid, safe and unhindered humanitarian access, end quote, remain unimplemented. United Nations General Assembly resolutions calling for a humanitarian ceasefire have been ignored. The situation could not be more urgent. Since these proceedings were initiated on the 29th of December 2023 alone, an estimated over 1,703 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza and over 3,252 injured. As to the criterion of irreparable prejudice, for decades now, the court has repeatedly found it to be satisfied in situations where serious risks arise to human life or to other fundamental rights. In the cases of Georgia, Russia and Armenia, Azerbaijan, the court ordered provisional measures, having found a serious risk of irreparable prejudice where hundreds of thousands of people had been forced from their homes. In ordering provisional measures in the latter case, the court noted the context of, I quote, the long-standing exposure of the population to a situation of vulnerability, including hindrances to the importation of essential goods, causing shortages of food, medicine, and other life-saving medical supplies, end quote. In Gaza, as you have heard, nearly two million people over 85% of the population have been repeatedly forced to flee their homes and shelters, not just once or twice, but some three, four or more times over, into shrinking slivers of land where they continue to be bombed and killed. This is a population that Israel had already made vulnerable through, 13, through 16 years of military blockade and crippling de-development. Today, Israel's hindrances to the import of food and essential items have brought Gaza to the brink of famine. With adults, mothers, fathers, grandparents regularly foregoing food for the day so that children can eat at least something. Medicine shortages and the lack of medical treatment, clean water and electricity are so great that large numbers of Palestinians are dying or are at imminent risk of dying preventable deaths. Cancer and other services have long shut down. Women are undergoing caesarean sections without anaesthetic in barely functioning hospitals described as scenes from a horror movie, with many undergoing otherwise unnecessary hysterectomies in an attempt to save their lives. In the Canada-Syria torture case, the court made clear that, I quote, individuals subject to torture and other acts of cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment are at serious risk of irreparable prejudice. Well, Palestinians in Gaza are also at risk of such irreparable prejudice, with videos of Palestinian boys and men rounded up and stripped and degraded broadcast to the world alongside footage of serious bodily harm and accounts of serious mental harm and humiliation. In Qatar, United Arab Emirates, the court considered provisional measures to be justified, having regard to the risk of irreparable prejudice deriving from factors such as people being forced to leave their places of residence without the possibility of return, the psychological distress 
of temporary or potentially ongoing separation from their families and the harm associated with students being prevented from taking their exams. If provisional measures were justified there, how could they not be in Gaza, where countless families have been separated, with some family members evacuating under Israeli military orders and others staying behind at extreme risk to care for the wounded, infirm and the elderly, where husbands, fathers and sons are being rounded up and separated from their families, taken to unknown locations for indeterminate periods of time. In the Qatar case, the court issued a provisional order where harm to approximately 150 students was an issue. In Gaza, 625,000 schoolchildren have not attended school for three months, with the United Nations Security Council expressing deep concern, I quote, that the disruption of access to education has a dramatic impact on children and that conflict has lifelong effects on their physical and mental health. Almost 90,000 Palestinian university students cannot attend at university in Gaza. Over 60% of schools, almost all universities and countless bookshops and libraries have been damaged or destroyed and hundreds of teachers and academics have been killed, including deans of universities and leading Palestinian scholars, obliterating the very prospects for the future education of Gaza's children and young people. Notably, the court has found provisional measures to be justified in all three cases where they were previously sought in relation to violations of the Genocide Convention. It did so in Bosnia and Serbia in 1993, finding on the basis of evidence that was certainly no more compelling than that presently before the court, that it was sufficient to determine that there was, and I quote, a grave risk of acts of genocide being committed. The court found provisional measures to be justified in the Gambia-Myanmar case on the basis of a risk of irreparable prejudice to the Rohingya subject to, quote, mass killings as well as beatings, the destruction of villages and homes, denial of access to food, shelter, and other essentials of life. More recently, in indicating provisional measures in Ukraine-Russia, the court considered that Russia's military activities had, quote, resulted in numerous civilian deaths and injuries and caused significant material damage including the destruction of buildings and infrastructure, end quote, giving rise to a risk of irreparable prejudice. The court had regard to the fact that, quote, attacks are ongoing and are creating increasingly difficult living conditions for the civilian population, end quote, which it considered to be extremely vulnerable. The court also considered the fact that, I quote again, many persons have no access to the most basic foodstuffs, potable water, electricity, essential medicines or heating, and that many were attempting to flee under extremely insecure conditions. This is occurring in Gaza on a much more intensive scale to a besieged, trapped, terrified population that has nowhere safe to go. Lest the contrary be suggested, it is clear from Ukraine-Russia 
that the fact that the urgent risk of irreparable harm arising in a situation of armed conflict does not undermine, much less preclude, a request for provisional measures. That's also clear from the Court's other judgments. So in the case of armed activities on the territory of the Congo, for example, the Court ordered provisional measures based on its finding that, quote, persons, assets and resources present on the territory of the Congo, particularly in the area of conflict, remain extremely vulnerable, and that there was a serious risk that rights at issue in the case may suffer irreparable prejudice, end quote. Similarly, in Costa Rica, Nicaragua, the court indicated provisional measures in part on the basis that the presence of troops in the disputed territory gave rise, I quote, to a real and present risk of incidents liable to cause irremediable harm in the form of bodily injury or death, end quote. In relation to the Genocide Convention in particular, the court recalled in Gambia, Myanmar, that, quote, states' parties expressly confirmed their willingness to consider genocide as a crime under international law, which they must prevent and punish independently of the context of peace or of war in which it takes place, end quote. More recently, in the case of Guyana, Venezuela, the court considered that the serious risk of Venezuela, quote, acquiring and exercising control and administration of the territory in dispute, end quote, gave rise to a risk of irreparable prejudice to the rights asserted in the case. Similar factors are an issue here, having regard to the territorial ambitions and settlement plans for Gaza being raised by members of the Israeli government and the relationship of those factors to the very survival of Palestinians in Gaza as such. Similarly, any scaling up by Israel of access of humanitarian relief to Gaza in response to these proceedings or otherwise would be no answer to South Africa's request for provisional measures. In the case of Iran, United States, the court found a risk of irreparable harm from the exposure of in individuals to danger to health and life caused by restrictions placed on medicines and medical devices, foodstuffs and other goods required for humanitarian needs. That was notwithstanding the assurances offered by the United States for it to expedite the consideration of humanitarian issues and notwithstanding the fact that the essentials were in any event exempt from the United, Nation, the United States sanctions. The court considered that the assurances were, I quote, not adequate to address fully the humanitarian and safety concerns raised and that there remained a risk that measures adopted by the United States may entail irreparable consequences. In Armenia, Azerbaijan, unilateral undertakings to alleviate restrictions alongside the full resumption of humanitarian and commercial deliveries did not defeat requests for the indication of provisional measures. The court was clear that while contributing, quote, towards mitigating the imminent risk of irreparable prejudice resulting from the military operation, those developments did not remove the risk entirely. Indeed, in Georgia, Russia, 
the court made clear that it considers a serious risk to subsist where, quote, the situation is unstable and could rapidly change. The court considered, quote, given the ongoing tension and the absence of an overall settlement to the conflict in this region, populations also remain vulnerable, end quote. Israel continues to deny that it is responsible for the humanitarian crisis it has created, even as Gaza starves. The aid it has belatedly begun to allow in is wholly inadequate and does not come anywhere close to the average 500 trucks being permitted daily before October, the, uh, before October 2023, even under the blockade. Any unilateral undertakings Israel might seek to give about future aid would not remove the risk of irreparable prejudice, not least considering Israel's past and current conduct towards the Palestinian people, including the 16 years of brutal siege on Gaza. In any event, as the United Nations Secretary General has made absolutely clear, it is a mistake to measure, a quote, the effectiveness of the humanitarian operation in Gaza based on the number of trucks allowed in. As he stressed, I quote, the real problem is that the way Israel is conducting this offensive means that the conditions for the effective delivery of humanitarian aid no longer exist. That would require security, staff who can work in safety, logistical capacity, and the resumption of commercial activity. It requires electricity and steady communications. All of these remain absent." End quote. Indeed, only shortly after Israel opened the Karem Shalom crossing to goods in late December 2023, it was struck in a drone attack, killing five Palestinians and leading to another temporary closure. Nowhere and nobody is safe. As the United Nations Secretary-General Secretary and all its chiefs have made clear, without a halt to Israel's military operations, crossings, aid convoys, and humanitarian workers, like everyone and everything else in Gaza, remain at imminent risk of further irreparable prejudice. An unprecedented 148 United Nations staff have been killed to date. Without a halt to Israel's military activity in Gaza, there will be no end to the extreme situation facing Palestinian civilians. Madam President, members of the court, if the indication of provisional measures was justified on the facts in those cases I have cited, how could it not be here? in a situation of much greater severity where the imminent risk of irreparable harm is so much greater. How could they not be justified in a situation that humanitarian veterans from crises spent spanning as far back as the killing fields of Cambodia, people who, in the words of the United Nations Secretary General, have seen everything, if they say it is so utterly unprecedented that they are out of words to describe it. 
It would be a complete departure from the long and established line of jurisprudence that this Court has firmly established and recently reconfirmed for the Court not to order provisional measures in this case. The imminent risk of death, harm and destruction that Palestinians in Gaza face today and that they risk every day during the pendency of these proceedings on any view justifies, indeed compels, the indication of provisional measures. Some might say that the very reputation of international law, its ability and willingness to bind and to protect all peoples equally hangs in the balance. But the Genocide Convention is about much more than legal precedent. It is also fundamentally about the confirmation and endorsement of elementary principles of morality. The Court recalled the 1946 General Assembly Resolution on the Crime of Genocide, which made clear that, I quote, Genocide is a denial of the right of existence of entire human groups, as homicide is the denial of the right to live of individual human beings. Such denial of the right of existence shocks the conscience of mankind, results in great losses to humanity in the form of cultural and other contributions represented by these human groups, and is contrary to moral law and to the spirit and aims of the United Nations." End quote. Notwithstanding the Genocide Convention's recognition of the need to rid the world of the odious scourge of genocide, the international community has repeatedly failed. It failed the people of Rwanda, it had failed the Bosnian people and the Rohingya, prompting this court to take action. It failed again by ignoring the early warnings of the grave risk of genocide to the Palestinian people, sounded by international experts since 19th of October of last year. The international community continues to fail the Palestinian people despite the overt, dehumanizing, genocidal rhetoric by Israeli governmental and military officials matched by the Israeli army's actions on the ground. Despite the horror of the genocide against the Palestinian people being live-streamed from Gaza to our mobile phones, computers and television screens, the first genocide in history where its victims are broadcasting their own destruction in real time in the desperate, so far vain hope that the world might do something. Gaza represents nothing short of a moral failure, as described by the usually circumspect International Committee of the Red Cross. As underscored by United Nations chiefs, that failure has, I quote, repercussions not just for the people of Gaza, but for the generations to come who will never forget these over 90 days of hell and assaults on the most basic precepts of humanity. As stated by a United Nations spokesperson in Gaza last week, at the site of a hospital clearly marked with the symbol of the Red Crescent, where five Palestinians, including a five-day-old baby, had just been killed. The world should be absolutely horrified. The world should be absolutely outraged. There is no safe space in Gaza, and the world should be ashamed.
Madam President, members of the court, in conclusion, I share with you two photographs. The first is of a whiteboard at a hospital in northern Gaza, one of the many Palestinian hospitals targeted, besieged, and bombed by Israel over the course of the past three brutal months. The whiteboard is wiped clean of no longer possible surgical cases, leaving only a handwritten message by a Médecins Sans Frontières doctor which reads, we did what we could. Remember us. The second photograph is of the same whiteboard after an Israeli strike on the hospital on the 21st of November that killed the author of the message, Dr. Mahmoud Abu Nujela, along with two of his colleagues. Just over a month later, in a powerful sermon delivered from a church in Bethlehem on Christmas Day, the same day Israel had killed 250 Palestinians, including at least 86 people, many from the same family, massacred in a single strike on Magazi refugee camp. Palestinian pastor Munzer Ishak addressed his congregation and the world, and he said, and I quote, Gaza as we know it no longer exists. This is an annihilation. This is a genocide. We will rise. We will stand up again from the midst of destruction, as we have always done as Palestinians, though this is by far maybe the biggest blow we have received. But he said, no apologies will be accepted after the genocide. What has been done has been done. I want you to look in the mirror and ask, where was I when Gaza was going through a genocide? South Africa is here before this court in the Peace Palace. It has done what it could. It is doing what it can by initiating these proceedings, by seeking interim measures against itself as well as against Israel. South Africa now respectfully and humbly calls on this honourable court to do what is in its power to do to indicate the provisional measures that are so urgently required to prevent further irreparable harm to the Palestinian people in Gaza, whose hopes, including for their very survival, are now vested in this court. Welcome back. And that was South Africa's argument before the International Court of Justice on yesterday. That's going to conclude our program for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Friday, January 12th, 2024. If you'd like to log on to this program, uh, go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal, or go to the Pan-African Newswire at panafricannews.blogspot.com. I'm going to close out with Kenny Burrell. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Thank you. 